You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I'll be reading from John 11:45 through uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen that he, what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, so that that day on they made plans to make to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave them a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment from her purinard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help people himself. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have, you always have with you, but you do not always have me." When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can you hear me? Does it sound good? Okay. Let's, uh, let's uh, pray and ask God to open his word to us. Heavenly Father, uh, uh, we thank you that you've spoken to us and uh, you've spoken to us through your son in these last days and I pray that Holy Spirit that these words that you inspired you would now uh, um, shine your light upon them. You would illuminate our hearts and our minds because if you don't do this uh, we remain uh, in the dark. We, we won't understand. So I pray that you'd help us. You'd take these words and you'd apply them to our lives that we would love Jesus more and we would look more like him. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen. Kids, I don't know if you've uh, ever kind of gotten into playing sports and getting into or cards or yo-yos and these sorts of things. And you learn a new trick and then you want to show everybody. Uh, I used to be into, when I was playing basketball, I would like to try to do trick shots. And my brother, he got into the yo-yo and so he would try to do these different tricks with the yo-yo. And then as soon as you figure something out, of course, you want other people to see. So you, you go and show off a little bit and like, hey, watch this. And you know, sometimes, you know, your friends are super impressed. And then maybe you're like, wow, that's a really great trick. And so you go and maybe you show your parents and they're like, mm, nice, nice work. Uh, that's, that's nice. And you're like, what? That is like the most amazing thing that's ever happened. Um, and so it's a little disappointing. You get these kind of mixed reactions. Sometimes people are really impressed with your tricks and some people aren't so much. And here at the end of John chapter 11, Jesus has just performed not a mere trick, but possibly one of his greatest miracles ever. And if you look in verse 45, you see that some people are impressed. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
But then, on the other hand, some folks are not so impressed. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council, and the council is definitely not super impressed. And it's these different responses that have uh, brought us to the middle of the Gospel of John and create this incredible tension. Uh, We've looked at the first half of John up to this point, and seven signs that Jesus has done. And as the signs get more and more amazing, the opposition and the belief kind of increase. And so what happens is there's this real tense moment right here towards the end of Jesus' life. And the rest of the Gospel of John is the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to be moving in that direction today. And as we move through this passage, the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12, there are three things I want to look at as the mood is really uh, one of celebration and one of great danger. And that is the first thing. There's a problem in this passage. And that is that there are a number of people that have, they're fake. They're religiously fake. And I want to look at fake religion. And that's the problem. And then one of the things I want us to think about as a church is, well, how do we avoid fake religion? And that's the second two points, which will be treasuring Jesus and then recognizing what God's grand plan is to see that God is at work in greater ways than we imagined. So fake religion, treasuring Jesus and God's great plan. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see a few things that are going to tie back actually to John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. So be ready with either your phones or your Bibles to move back and forth a little bit. So fake religion or uh, fake piety. We see in chapter 11 verses 47 through 53 and then 50, verse 57 and then if you jump all the way to chapter 12 verse 10 through 11, we get a, several glimpses of our religious leaders, the Pharisees and the high priests, which together make the Jewish, highest Jewish council of their day, the Sanhedrin. And they have a problem in their minds. They have this problem because Jesus' signs are getting so incredible. In verse 46, they say, what are we doing? What are we going to do? This man performs many signs, and the belief is increasing. You know, when your enemies start raising the dead, you've got to start thinking about your strategies uh, because so far, not many people can do those sorts of things, and so you have quite a notable uh, opponent if they're raising the dead. And not surprisingly, many people... You know, when people start raising the dead, you start to think someone's amazing is at hand. And so people start to believe in Jesus, and they want to squelch the belief in Jesus. Verse 48, they say, if we let him go on like this, if we just keep letting him raising the dead like this, everyone's going to believe in him. So Jesus' work is incredible, uh, except that it's frustrating, uh, exceedingly frustrating for them, and they can't stop him. In fact, death doesn't seem to be able to stop him, and so they're getting just a smidge desperate. And so when they get desperate, what are they going to do? Well, they get together and they're brainstorming. How are they going to solve this problem? You know, they bring, let's, let's bring in some lawyers. We'll, we'll just sue him. You know, he slandered us, called us hypocrites and stuff like that. Let's sue him. No, no, they don't do that. Uh, nor do they bring in like some corrupt underworld leaders. You know, they don't bring in the mafia and be like, can you guys take care of this guy for us? No. In fact, uh, notice that it's actually the high priest. The high priest is the one who has the brilliant idea to kill him. Now, we've read the Gospels. Some of us have read the Gospels so much, you're just used to the high priest sort of being one of the bad guys in the story. But you have to think about this for a moment. The high priest is supposedly the most religious, significantly pers- significant person in his day for the Jews. He's, imp- he's important because he oversees the temple. He's this figure of purity, a figure of of holiness, God's holiness. And he's also got this job of looking out for God's people and their holiness. And so one of the things, if you read the Old Testament actually, is that the priests had a lot of work to do. They would have to take care of their own purity and holiness before they went and did any of the religious stuff. But then all the religious stuff that they go and do is for the purity and holiness of other people. 
So the fact that we have a high priest here who's the one proposing conscious plotted murder is rather crazy. So here he is going completely against every plan that God ever set forward for the priesthood. I've read through the Old Testament enough that I don't think there's any points where God says, and the high priest occasionally can have people bumped off if he doesn't like them. There's nothing like that in the Old Testament. And not just Jesus. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12, the chief priests also made plans. The chief priests, okay, notice the detail, plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They have fatal religious fakery, these guys. And Jesus, being aware of the danger in verse 54, he, he gets out of there. He's not gonna hang out in Jerusalem uh, because it's so tense and so dangerous. So, uh, why? why what's, what's at stake for the priests? What's at stake for the Pharisees? Well, we find out in verse 48 that they say that they're afraid that their place and their nation will be taken away by the Romans. What they're afraid of is that somehow Jesus either intentionally or accidentally is gonna spark some sort of Jewish rebellion that's gonna tick off the Romans and the Romans are gonna come in and mow down the Jews and level uh, the, the nation, which is not an unrealistic fear uh, considering the history of the Jews at this time. And when it says our place, in, in the English translation, that's potentially sort of vague. You might think that it might be our position, but our place is ref a reference particularly to the temple, their religious center. So they have this concern for the temple, the concern for the nation. You know, these guys seem to have good motives. But in fact, Jesus has already pointed out in other parts of other gospels that the Pharisees really just love respect in the marketplace. And so they'll get up, on, they'll get up in public and they'll say long prayers because they want people to think they're super awesome and super religious. And of course, you can't totally fault them. We all love to be respected. We like to be noticed. We like to feel important. And it's not uncommon for those who are leaders, for example, and people come to them for guidance, for uh, suggestions. And it, you can feel needed, feel uh, like people look up to you, that you have something to offer. Or teachers, you know, experts, you know, folks who have any sort of education, you know, when people come to you for answers, the religious leaders are like, yeah, well, I can answer your, your troubling uh, religious question or your Bible question. And again, you can feel rather important and you get used to it. And the idea that there's someone else maybe who's better at it than you, who might take your place, well, that's sometimes hard to deal with. But the Pharisees and the high priests, those are an external danger to Jesus. So he's able to avoid them. And they're the ones that are making things really tense at this point, at the end of chapter 11. But then you move into chapter 12 and we get another point of religious fakery that's also rather dangerous. And that's Judas, if you look at verses four and six of chapter 12. Now Judas doesn't get mentioned a ton in the Gospel of John. He's mentioned that the last time we hear about him is in John chapter six and nothing super significant. It is said that he'll betray Jesus. Uh, but here, uh, he actually gets highlighted. He gets highlighted by John because actually if you compare uh, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, uh, which the same event occurs, uh, it doesn't actually mention who it is that objects to the anointing of Jesus' feet. It's only, we're only told it's some of the disciples. But here, John actually gives us more detail, much more detail about who objects and why. Mary anoints Jesus' feet, and it's very expensive ointment, and 300 denarii, we're told. And one denarii is about a, a day laborer's wage. So uh, if you take out the, the 52 Sabbaths that a Jew would observe, you more or less have a, year, a year's worth of wages here, 300 days of work. That's how much this would cost. And Judas, pious, pious Judas, is like, whoa, whoa, we are wasting way too much money that we could be giving to the poor. 
Isn't that the thing you'd expect from a disciple of Jesus? Jesus constantly teaches about caring for the poor and pious Judas comes in and says, wait, wait, don't, don't waste it. We could help poor people. You know, there's always uh, someone you could be doing, you know, we, we spend so much money in this country and you could always be thinking of a better cause and Judas is certainly doing that. But John gives us a little bit more detail here than we get in the other Gospels. If you look at verse 6, he says, John tells us that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He's the one who carries the money around, and he's he's been helping himself. We don't know what, but it's interesting if you think about the fact that not only is he a thief, but he's the one who has the money bag. If he can persuade them to stop pouring so much ointment, go sell it, and he'll watch over it. He's just lining his own pockets, and he's a liar. He's a thief and a liar who pretends to care about the poor, if only that he can get his hands on a little bit more money. Now, one of the things that we're not told by John is why Judas loves money. We don't know. Did he grow up not having lots of money and so he has a a desire for security? Or that he just is like one of these people that has no control over spending habits. He has incredible credit card debts. We don't know why he loves money, but we do know that he can't seem to stop stealing and using it for himself. And he uses piety, he uses religiosity to look, to hide uh, what he actually cares about. And it's money that severs him from Jesus because we are told in this passage that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And if you read a little further, you know that he's going to get some money for betraying Jesus. And you wonder, did Judas, was in this moment when he says, oh, we could give it to the poor, Do you think he knows what's actually in his heart? Does he know his spiritual state? And at this point, I want us to think about this, and it's a little bit heavy to think about being religiously fake, especially in the church. But we as a church need to think about this, and we need to beg God to protect us because it's seriously, seriously dangerous. And here's why. Fake piety, fake piety can mask what is actually in our hearts. You know, we often know what the right thing is to say. It's easy to know the right thing to say sometimes, especially if you've grown up being around religious stuff and religious talk. And it's much easier to say the religious thing than either to do it or even to desire to do it. Cicero, one of the great Roman politicians who lived about 75 years before Jesus, listen to what he has to say. He says that of all the forms of injustice, none is more flagrant than that of the hypocrite who at the very moment when he is most false makes it his business to appear virtuous. So we can fool ourselves. We can think that we're actually really great or we're really okay and certainly everyone around us, who knows? Everyone must have thought, oh, I wish I had thought of that, Judas. That's great. We should be thinking about the poor. But Judas, and and what makes Judas even worse, though, is that he's already seen Jesus denounce the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Judas knows that religious fakeness is not a virtue. And he knows it as an inside disciple. He's, He's had the best internship that anyone could ask for, He's worked with Jesus. He's a disciple of Jesus. And it's this fake piety that is going to kill Jesus. And fake piety of not only the priests, the Pharisees, and Judas is going to kill Jesus, but this is the kind of thing that kills churches. And it kills our own souls. We can all think of churches where we know of pastors who took money. Pastors who used their position to gain influence and misuse that power that has ruined people's spiritual states, their, their own trust in God. And we also know of churches where people are fake, where they talk one way with each other but bite each other behind the back, stab each other behind the back. 
And no one wants to be a part of that kind of, that's the thing that people, no one wants that. And when you see it, when you experience it, it makes you wonder about the truthfulness of someone like Jesus, about the truthfulness of Christianity, because you see the followers doing the complete opposite of everything that they say they believe in. So what are the things that you really want? When you talk about caring for the poor, when you talk about how much you read your Bible, or when you talk about whatever the religious thing is, how much you love Jesus, do you really love Jesus? Do you really like praying? Do you really care for the poor? What are the things that are actually in our hearts? And we want, as a church, to be clean. We want to come clean with each other. It's not that we want, we know that we're not perfect. That's why we need Jesus. But we want to help each other not be religiously fake and actually confess our sins and be free of our sins. Now, how do we fight fake religion? And this brings us to the second point, which is that we want to treasure Jesus. And we can see that actually in Mary. Mary, uh, in verse 3, we just get a very brief glimpse. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She gives a very, very lavish gift, a pound or about just around a pound of this expensive ointment. We're told that it's an expensive ointment of pure nard. The commentators aren't exactly sure where this ointment, what it is or where it comes from. They think that it might be foreign. So it probably came from a far ways away which is one of the reasons it's expensive and it's pure. And you can think, what is the most lavish gift you've ever given to someone? Have you ever given someone a gift that cost you a year's worth of wages? 300 denarii. Mary gives an incredible gift. She knows that Jesus is somehow really, really valuable. And in fact, you know, Judas, Judas can't fathom the idea of giving a gift like this to somebody. But Jesus rebukes him. He says in verse 8, the poor you'll always have with you, but you won't always have me. He highlights the fact that Judas doesn't know how to value him, but Mary does. But there's not merely a financial cost to Mary. It's not merely that she gave a year's wages in order to anoint Jesus' feet. It takes a lot of humility. Paul says, actually, that a woman's hair is her, kind of her glory. And back then, uh, there were all sorts of taboos around how women did their hair. Uh, a married woman, for example, wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't show her hair in public. Usually, she w- it would be covered or uh, up. But Mary lets down her hair here and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And, you know, we don't live really in a day where everyone's main transportation is their feet on their, in their sandals. And so feet are smelly, sweaty, nasty, swollen, right? This is not the most pleasant thing to do. And if somebody were to, they didn't even ask people unless they were servants to wash people's feet. It was a servant's job. And you can imagine, I mean, ladies, think about the person you'd most be willing to wash their feet with your hair. Just think about it. It's not really a, readily coming. I, I mean, my hair's not long enough to do that sort of thing, but I can imagine that is the last thing I would ever want to do, even in our day and age. And it's easy. We know when our dignity is kind of challenged. You know, if someone says, hey, why don't you go clean the toilets? And you're like, well, hey, I'm not the janitor here. Our dignity can be affronted, but Mary loves Jesus so much that it's not a matter of dignity. She forgets herself and she washes his feet with her hair. Now, one of the things is, is if you actually contrast Jesus with the Sanhedrin, with these religious leaders, with Judas, you can actually begin to see some of the reasons why Mary will love Jesus so much. Jesus says in John chapter 10, he talking about himself as the good shepherd, he says in John 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Judas is a thief. The Pharisees and the priests, they're destroyers, they're killers. 
But Jesus has come that they may have life, and Mary knows this firsthand. They're having a feast in all likelihood because they're celebrating the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You can imagine, in general, if you have somebody in your midst who can raise the dead, how valuable that person would be. But then imagine that that person has raised your closest family member back from the dead. You thought you lost them, and that person restores them to you. You'd be incredibly grateful, and Mary knows that Jesus is the good shepherd who has come to that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that this is an expression of the love of Jesus. As Pastor Josh pointed out last week, the love of Jesus pervades chapter 11. There's all sorts of ways that Jesus is loving people, and Mary and Martha have seen the love of Jesus in them, him giving life to Lazarus. Unlike the fake leaders, they're fake, they're killers, they're liars. But John also tells us in the prologue of the gospel that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus isn't religiously fake. You can trust the things that he says. The things that come out of his mouth are real. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who, who was really true. They, they were really sincere. It's hard to meet sincere people. That, that you didn't have to second guess. Is there... Is there something behind what they're saying? Jesus is perfectly true and perfectly trustworthy. He is transparent. And Mary, Mary loves Jesus. And that's something we want for ourselves. We want that kind of humility and self-forgetfulness that Mary has. We want that love for Jesus. We want even the things of Jesus to be reflected in us, that truthfulness. We don't want to be the hiders, the fakers, the liars. We want to be open and honest like Jesus is, full of grace and truth. And here's one of the things that's really striking. Mary's washing Jesus' feet with her hair is actually Mary looking like Jesus because we know in the gospel to come, later Jesus is himself going to wash the feet of the disciples and so in every way, Mary's response to treasuring Jesus is actually because she knows the love that Jesus gives. So that's one way that we fight this kind of religious fakeness is that we, we know Jesus more. We know his truthfulness. We know his grace. We know his life-giving power. And so we ourselves are captivated by Jesus and are made more like him. Now, the situation for Jesus here is super dangerous. He's got people who want to kill him and they're religiously fake and we have this just moment of peace here, this moment of peace where they're throwing this feast for Jesus and Mary anoints Jesus' feet. And so we see how we can combat religious fakeness by treasuring Jesus. But there's one other thing that is important if we're going to kind of resist the, this trap that the religious leaders have fallen into, and that is that we have to see that God has a greater plan that's going on. And throughout John, in this passage, we get a lot of different hints that God is actually at work behind the scenes despite all of the danger that Jesus is facing, all the attempts of the enemy of these religious leaders to destroy Jesus, God is actually doing something rather remarkable. He's going to accomplish something incredible through Jesus, and they're not expecting it. So the setup is, it's Passover. Jesus has the religious leaders, the ones who are in charge of the Passover, who want to kill him. And the Passover was the biggest, one of the biggest holidays for the Jews, and it was remembering how God had rescued them out of Egypt, the biggest rescue mission that they had ever seen, that the world had ever seen. And it was also the time when they would celebrate the Day of the Atonement, when the priest would kill a lamb in order to cleanse the people from their sins. It was the day for gaining religious and ethical purity before God. And we notice that in this passage that people are purifying themselves in order to get ready for the feast. And it all centers on the temple. But Jesus is going to die, which is you can almost feel there's a mood of sadness in the passage. And Jesus himself says that Mary, in verse 7 of chapter 12, he tells Judas to leave her alone so that she 
may keep it, that is the, the, the ointment for the day of my burial. He takes this moment to reflect on his coming death. But his death is not merely him dying as a religious martyr. He's going to die for the nation, we're told. If you look at chapter 11, verses 49 and 51, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He's going to die instead of the nation. But then look at verse 51. Caiaphas, he, the high priest, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. God is actually working through the high priest to prophesy about the significance of Jesus' death, that he's going to die on behalf of the nation. Somehow, his death is going to be significant for the Jewish people. And not only that, he's actually going to die as a shepherd. His, his actual death is going to be a shepherding act. If you look at chapter 11, verse uh, 52, we get these words of scattering and gathering. These two words actually show up quite a bit in the Old Testament, and it has everything to do with shepherding. And remember, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but not like the thieves, not like the hired hands. Listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah the scattering has to do with shepherds who failed. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 20, uh, chapter 10, verse 21. For the shepherds are stupid. This is God talking to the religious leaders. And do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered. And all their flock is scattered. The sheep are scattered. And then jump to chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. This is what the Lord declares. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care or watch out for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. The language of scattering is grounded all the way back into Deuteronomy 30, where if God's people don't obey God, they will be scattered, just as we read in Deuteronomy 30, earlier today. And John tells us that Jesus, in verse 52, Jesus is going to gather the scattered children of God. Jesus will give his life, and as he gives his life, he's going to ga gather these scattered children. These are, this is shepherding work. And it's also the exact same thing that Jesus says back in John chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. If you can turn there with me. In John 10, 12 through 14, Jesus is talking of himself as the good shepherd, and he says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And the hired hand, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, and I, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so that they will be one flock, one shepherd. And we get that same language here in 1152. Jesus is going to die, not just for the Jewish nation, but he's going to gather people beyond He's going to gather the children of God from all the nations. We have this allusion to the great work of God, which is not simply the nation, which is what the Jewish leaders are focusing on, however hypocritically. Jesus has not only cared for that nation, but he cares for all the nations, and he himself in his death is going to gather, gather those sheep. So how does actually thinking about this grand plan help us resist and be free of this religious fakery? Well, the religious leaders and Judas have very small goals, very small plans. They're focused largely on themselves and what, on their position, on their comforts. Judas wants a little bit more money or a lot more money. And so they actually have lost sight, the religious leaders, the religious leaders have lost sight 
of God's aims. They can't understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish. That God has a plan, a universal plan, a cosmic plan that's going to cleanse Israel and cleanse the nations with this Passover lamb, Christ. And that is Christ as the Passover lamb and as the good shepherd is going to rescue rescue us, all of us, from our sins, from our, our idolatrous focused sins that keep everything small, that keep us from seeing God, the things that sever us, that cut us off from the living God, that are unimportant in the big scheme of things. And what we want is we want, we want to have the same vision of our good shepherd. We want his plans, not our plans. We want his desires, not our desires. We want his self-forgetting, life-giving, self-sacrificing life. And we need to actually see also that he is a competent shepherd. We, can, we need to see that he's capable of gathering people that we can't gather. If we think that the, that the gospel, the great commission, the gathering in of people into God's church, to this one flock, is our efforts based on our capacities, we'll become discouraged. We might think that we need to put on a good face if people are going to come in. But we need actually rather to see the good shepherd and we need to help other people see the good shepherd. That there are people that he can reach that we can't reach because he's the one who can go to the extremes to reach people. Now listen to this in Deuteronomy 30 verses 3 through 4. This is God saying the people will be scattered. He promises Israel they'll be scattered. But that he will gather, he, God, will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the utmost parts of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. From the uttermost parts of heaven, think about this. Jesus, there is nobody that Jesus cannot rescue. He pulls, he pulls Lazarus back from the dead. That's incredible shepherding. None of your pastors can do that. There's no pastor, there's no elder that can pull people back from the dead, but Christ can. The uttermost parts of heaven and Christ himself went on the other side of death that we might have life. And when he does that, listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse six and eight. And the Lord your God, when he gathers you, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep his commandments that I command you this day. Not only can he bring you back from life physically, but he can change your heart. Judas, Judas's heart didn't love Christ. We, we need the same shepherding that Jesus can offer, which is to make our hearts love God to change us. We, we can't treasure Christ without him doing that shepherding work. And so as he gathers his church and he gathers us, we want our religion to be grounded in Jesus. Not some appearance of being super religious, but we want genuine Christianity. If we want genuine unity, we must want Jesus. And we must see that he's a part of God's work and that he's doing God's work as the real, true, and good shepherd and that he will make us one, and he will gather his people. That's our hope. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we all know that there are ways that we pretend, that we pretend to be better off than we actually are, that we say nice-sounding words. We say things. We pray really cool prayers. We pray really uh, pious things. But we, you know that what's in our hearts, O oh Lord. Other people might not, but you do. And we know that you must change us deep down inside. And we need Jesus to shepherd us. And I pray, O oh Lord, we would not resist his shepherding. We'd not resist the convicting work that he does. And that we'd be able to be open and true like our Savior. We'd be able to come clean and have life in him. We ask this, O oh Lord, that you would guard and keep uh, redeeming grace and all other churches that preach your gospel. Keep us pure, O Lord. Keep us faithful to you and know your shepherding hand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, pardon the transition there. I want to keep the computer here just so I don't miss any questions. If you do have some questions, type them in now. Uh, there's about a one-minute delay, I think, between us talking here okay. and mm -hmm. you hearing us. So that just puts more pressure on you to get your question in right away because we may move on while you're ty typing it. And uh, so we encourage you that if you've got something, throw it in. We would love to answer your questions. So thank you, Justin. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated how you handled the text. and. Um, I was encouraged by what you said and challenged as well. Um, so I have a couple questions, which is yeah. probably not surprising. One is that um, I've got a few here. Um, can you explain? Um, I may have missed this part of your message. Yeah, yeah. I was d messing with some technical stuff. Yeah. But, uh, so I apologize if you're repeating yourself here. No, you can let fine. me know. But verses 50 through 52, we have the... Um, um, the statement that it's better that one man die for the people than all the people die. Yeah. Um, and then it goes on to explain in the next verse that that's uh, that that is kind of an unintended prophecy of what's yeah. about to happen. Would you explain kind of how that works? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is what seems to be happening is that um, so Caiaphas, despite the fact that he is clearly a corrupt person in some capacity, uh, he's occupying this God ordained office, and actually God in some way speaks through him so that he actually is going to speak prophetically about the significance of Jesus' death even to these enemies of Jesus. Um, and so he is going to actually foreshadow as the high priest who actually would be involved in the Passover, he would be the one offering the blood of Christ. It's, it's ironic actually that Caiaphas is going to 
his, it's his idea, let's kill this guy. And that actually his, in his suggestion of killing him, which is going to be to kill the Lamb of God, he's also actually, as the high priest, also prophesying about the significance of this sacrifice. So there's two really ironic things going on here. One is that his heart is completely in the wrong place, and yet he's, he is accomplishing God's gospel plans uh, in this moment. Yeah, that's, that is a, an, an amazing thing because that was really some of the purposes of the sacrifices is that God's justice should rightly be poured out on God's people. Yeah. And the point of the sacrifices was that better a lamb die yeah. than people. Yeah. And uh, little, little does Caiaphas really recognize yeah. that, that he, is, he is making the same logical conclusion that God makes in the gospel, yeah. but missing yeah, yeah. the fulfillment of it right in front of him. While he's preparing to slaughter lambs, he's also preparing to slaughter the lamb of God. Yeah. And unintentionally, but according to God's plan, fulfilling that. Yeah. So really amazing. Yeah. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So this is how the forgiveness of sins is going to happen at this this Passover. (laughs) Uh, So it's completely unexpected as far as Caiaphas is. He's completely unaware of what he's doing. But nonetheless, God is working. So that means that God is even working the evil intentions of people for the accomplishment of his plans. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. He's even using his hypocrisy <laughs> yeah. as a fulfillment and uh, doesn't even realize what he's saying, which is is uh, is encouraging that God is just that sovereign. But it's also kind of an ominous warning to us that, yeah, we uh, we um, that you can know the scriptures really well. You can be involved in ministry service and yeah. actually. Oh, yeah be very far from God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's kind of the warning you're giving us in this passage. Um, uh, another question I had, I don't see any come in yet, so if you uh, attempt it, attempt again, but uh, I've got another one for you. You mentioned that the story of the woman anointing Jesus' feet, um, some of the accounts actually have him anointing his head. Yeah. And then uh, and it's actually, an, uh, there's, there's, this kind of account happens in all four Gospels, Mark t- Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 7, and John 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, are those all describing the same event? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how deep you got into your study, but um, yeah. is it because actually in Luke 7, I'll give you a little more information. Luke 7 actually says that it's a woman of ill repute. It's mm-hmm. a woman who has a sinful, yeah. which many assume was maybe prostitution. Yeah. Um, is this the same one? Is Mary that same person? Or yeah. So it seems that actually... Um, in Matthew and Mark and John, we have the, those three are describing the same event. Luke has a separate event, a separate account that seems to take in a separate place. Um, so in Luke, it's a Pharisee's home. And in um, Matthew and Mark, I believe, they actually tell us what home this is. Now, if you read John, you might think that this Simon is... Simon the leper. Yeah, Simon the leper. Yeah. You might think that this is actually in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's home, but it actually doesn't say that in John. So it seems that actually... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all the same event. Um, and so uh, what we have here is those three all go together. And yeah, th- some of them mention Jesus' head being anointed. Now, one of the things the gospel writers often will do is that John doesn't say that his head wasn't anointed. It's just that he focuses on the fact that Mary is anointing his feet. And part of it seems to be the fact, the reason why John is highlighting that particular facet is because she sh- he's showing how Mary is like Jesus. Uh, and so there's a reflection going back and forth because Jesus will also um, wash his disciples' feet. So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a parallel between the two that I think John is trying to bring out, which is why he doesn't throw in the other detail that it was Jesus' head as well, probably. He's just trying to keep us focused on some particular facet. That's why he just tells us about the feet in this passage. Yeah, so I hadn't really thought about that until someone asked that question actually last week, and I wasn't able to get to it in the live stream, but a great question and I, yeah, I, I agree I think it's two different accounts where two different women separately yeah. presumably had this kind yeah. of response to Jesus you know it's actually uh, one other thing that's intriguing about it is I was emailing a friend this week and he had been s- doing some study on this passage and he says one of the things that's striking about Mary and I don't have any clear conclusions about this but that whenever she gets mentioned in all the gospels she's often at the feet of Jesus you know she sits at the feet of Jesus for teaching she falls at the feet of Jesus. She's washing the feet of Jesus. So there's something about Mary that's maybe particularly, she's, she's always ready to be at the feet of Jesus that's 
throughout the Gospels. So I, I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but there you have it. And, and she's kind of criticized every time, isn't she? Isn't she? She's like, yeah, yeah. Isn't she it gets Martha criticized. says, yeah, it's Martha, true. you know, yeah, make her come, make help, her come me. help me. Yeah. You know, she should be helping getting the, you're an honored guest. She should, she should be working. And he defends her. Yeah. And, and then, then here again, he's defending here, yeah. her. That's yeah. true. I, d- I hadn't thought of that. That's good. Yeah. So Jesus is, is very defensive of people that yeah. come to him yeah. at his feet. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in what is totally, um, or at least presumed to be inappropriate. Yeah. It's inappropriate for a woman to sit at the rabbi's feet. Yeah. And yet she does it. Yeah. So she's got kind of a, a godly irreverence. Yeah, yeah. For the norms in that she's going to come to Jesus no matter what. And then here she's she's casting a year's worth of wages yeah. at Jesus' feet so extravagantly and wastefully. Yeah. And Jesus defends. Yeah. Jesus defends the one that wants to be at his feet. Yeah. Doing what kind of breaks the cultural rules. Yeah. Um, in extravagant love for him. So. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, a couple more. Um how do you know if you have fake religion? <laughs> That's a great question. I th- well, so I think that the Christian, fortunately, has also the Holy Spirit. You know, like, when we are convicted of being fake, I think we need to confess it. You know, we need to be like, oh, Lord, help me. Confess it to the Lord. And I think that our ability to actually perceive it in ourselves is rather crucial. Jesus says, take out the log in your own eye before you take the speck out in your, in yourself. And I would say that I think the Christian is more likely, hopefully, as they're in the word. I think that one of the things is that God's word is a mirror to us, uh, shows us who we are. You know, we should be able to see in the Pharisees, whoa, I do that. You know, and so what one of the things that the Christian wants to do is, is get as many logs out of their eyes as possible. So if that's kind of like part of our posture is we want to be in the word and in prayer in order to discover those things, then we'll want to get them out of our eyes more quickly. I think that if you're struggling with being religiously fake, you tend to see the other people's flaws much more easily, much more quickly. I mean, everyone can see religious fakery. It's just the question of whether we can see it in ourselves. And I think that God's word is crucial for the Christian. One of the reasons why we need to be in the word and then also being transparent with brothers and sisters. If we're willing to come clean, it's going to help us to get that stuff out and be transparent with God. That's one of the reasons we confess our sins, not only in the service, but in day-to-day life. We, we just don't want, we don't want to be, and if, if there's moments where we're like, am I hiding stuff? We want to like get away from that. We don't want to hide stuff. And so those are the ways I think we avoid it and fight it. Um, I think that if you're a chronic religious fake, you're in pretty big danger because you just keep moving. It gets deeper and deeper, darker and darker and harder to see. So you want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. I, I don't know if that, that's like how to not be religiously yeah. fake because yeah. I think that it is hard to know if you are. And so it's a mercy when you see it. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, I would just add a couple things is yeah. that um, I think that if you have the kind of posture that goes, it's possible mm-hmm. that I could be faking like if you have the kind of heart that goes I need to hear you know am I faking in some way so that teachable heart of going oh certainly I'm not the fake one yeah but that sense of kind of receiving let me test myself to see if I'm of the faith yeah yeah um so hopefully not in a paralyzing way yeah but in a sense of going um so I I think if you're worried about being a fake you probably aren't yeah (laughs) because you know because you genuinely, you want the real thing yeah. and you don't want to settle for less. And so our hearts are deceptive. And so we're not a good assessor of ourselves. Yeah. So we need brothers and sisters yeah. and we've got to be able to speak godly encouragement yeah. to go, here's what I see in you. Yeah. Because sometimes we can get discouraged. So there's a fine line there. Yeah. I think, I think another thing is, are we comfortable around Jesus? Like I can remember as I, at different points in my life would s- struggle with sin, like I, some, and sometimes wrestling with it. Um, and I, I mean, I've definitely had, pl- I, I, I'm a, I would say I'm something of an expert in religious fakeness. I mean, I've struggled with religious fakeness even when I was in, in doing a pastoral internship a few years ago. Um, I was struggling with pornography, and yet I was still pretending to be this, you know, pastor at times. Um, but I think that one of the things is how comfortable are we with Jesus? Like, like would you rather be with your sin, or would you rather be with Jesus? I think it's another question to kind of test your and I think that the person who knows that they're like, I, I, I know that there are ways I'm false, 
but I want Jesus and I want to give this stuff up. That's another way to know where our heart is. And I think, because I would sometimes avoid reading passages of scripture because I was like, oh, I, I know that's gonna be convicting and I'll just stay away from, say the Sermon on the Mount or something. Yeah, I think one other thing that I would point out, this is such an important point that I think it's worth dwelling on for just one more minute, minute but um, we see here that an extravagant response to Jesus yeah. um, surfaces the fakeness. Mm-hmm. You know, it was what kind of surfaced Judas was the fact that she was extraordinarily gen- generous yeah. and extravagant. So I would say that is the fact that other people are outwardly intense in their affection for Jesus. If that bothers you, yeah, yeah, that's good. That might be an indication. Yeah. Because Judas was, and again, his motives, he could put a, a religious um, covering on it. But if it's like someone else's passion for Jesus, um, you know, I, I don't want to go too far there because there is ways that that can go off the rails too. But yeah. Um, but how do I, how do I respond? Am I yeah. trying to rationalize? Am I yeah. trying to explain away? Yeah, that's good. As opposed to internalizing in, in the sense of going, she's at his feet and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so h- how other people's extravagant uh, expression of love for Jesus. How yeah. does that then? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good kind of way to take your spiritual yeah. temperature. Yeah, because that's what, that's what the Pharisees were upset about too. And yeah. I'm struck by the fact that they're concerned about if we let Jesus continue to live, he'll yeah. just keep re- raising people from the dead. Yeah. And then we're really in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Then just never at any them. point did they sit back and kind of evaluate their perspective on things. Yeah. They're so so hardened in their yeah. religious fakeness yeah. that that means more to them than Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a terrible, terrible yeah, that's, thing. That's a so really good point. Um, yeah. In my own life, I can s- see that at times. <laughs> yeah. Let me, we did have one come in, and uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to answer this one here, but I'll ask it and we can okay. take a quick stab at it. Can you explain the different Marys in the Bible? Oh, okay. Uh, probably not, but I can think of th- four off the top. You got Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Mary Magdalene, and then there's another Mary, I believe, who gets mentioned very briefly in some of the women who go to the tomb. Um, So, and Mary in our passage and Mary Magdalene sometimes get confused, and some people think that Mary Magdalene, who has had, we're told she had seven demons cast out of her, some people think that she's the woman in Luke 7. We, We don't know that for sure, but um, Mary, Jesus' mother, we know her. She's throughout all the Gospels at different points. She's at the cross with Jesus, um, of course, at his birth, naturally. Um, and then you have Mary with Martha and Lazarus. Um, so she's, she's in all the Gospels. She's, their family's really close with Jesus somehow. And then Mary Magdalene is the woman who will be one of the first women to see Jesus actually at the tomb. Jesus shows up to her personally, actually in John's Gospel. And then the other Mary... Uh, is just kind of a, a name mentioned as a witness. So those are the kind of, there's three key Marys, and then there's a fourth that I can think of off the top. I think Mary's a, a very common Jewish yeah. name at that time, so yeah. we need to make sure that we're not necessarily connecting all the Marys, but it's tough to track. And yeah. I think you did a great job of, um, I was going to say three, but yeah, I think you're right. I think there's at least four. I th- yeah, there might be a fifth. I don't know. Yeah. But those are the four I can think of. Yeah, which there's a lot of Johns. There's a lot of... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, you know, there's John the Baptist and John, the, you know, so there's there's several common names. I, I don't know if they just weren't very creative back then or what. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots of Joshes around, but that's yeah. probably good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Justin. Yeah. I'm going to switch you out, and yeah. uh, we'll have your wife come up, and I've asked her to... Um, to answer some questions for me. What we've done at the end of each of these services is not just do a Q&A, but also just introduce you to one of the members of our church and just briefly hear their story. And so um, because we have to share a mic here, I'll go ahead and throw out all three. And then, uh, so it'll be less back and forth, but, and you can just share as the Lord allows you or uh, as you feel comfortable. So uh, question number one is, tell us how you grew up and how you came to trust in Jesus. Second, tell us about how you met your husband just about your kind of family life now. And then how do you, how do you serve the Lord? Where do you see the, the future kind of hold? What are you excited about for the future in serving the Lord? Yeah, so I would, I would say um, 
I don't know as far as uh, coming to the Lord that I can pinpoint a moment in time where, you know, I was converted. I would definitely describe it much more like um, the way you would gradually get to know someone that you grew up with. Um, so I, I grew up in a Christian family, a, a stable home with parents who loved each other and who really set an example of what it looked like to live for the Lord and love the Lord. And they were really involved in the church and um, included us in everything that they did. So we were really a part of the community of God and his life, um, that the life of the community from a young age. And um, my mom was uh, really helped us to develop the habit and discipline of really spending time with the Lord every day from a very young age. So that was a really significant part of my growth is learning to spend time with the Lord, reading his word. And um, as a kid, I often wrote a lot of worship songs in my time with God before school. Uh, that was so sort of a big thing. Uh, when my sister was in seventh grade, she started, uh, she invited some friends from school. We were, we went to a private Christian school um, and to do like a worship time at our house that became like a regular thing and 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 it grew over the years and that was kind of a um i think sort of shaped me a little bit as far as getting to really seek the lord and see with people my age and just see the lord working in that way and that kind of fizzled out but then in in college i um i commuted from home and my parents and i hosted a theology discussion group at our house sort of a similar kind of idea and that was just like a big source of encouragement and so I would say there's like a lot of things I could say just about my growth in the Lord but those are I guess a few highlights um as far as my family um I'm married to Justin the who preached today um and I would say the our story is sort of also related to just my growth in the Lord and learning to trust in him and seeking to um, treasure him and be satisfied in him. I can look back right now and remember three very specific prayers that I prayed for several years and um, just see how the Lord answered them specifically, one of them being for a godly husband. Um, so I met Justin at church uh, when he was in seminary, and I was just finishing high school, um, and I sort of was a little bit interested in him but I wasn't really sure if he would notice me because I was so little um <laughs> but then uh uh th about three years later uh, after like some growing interest I learned that he had been somewhat interested but was actually planning to pursue someone else and that was really difficult and I spent it led me to a lot of prayer and fasting um and he never actually ended up dating this other person but I remember the day that he came and asked me out that I was praying and fasting that it would be the last day I had to pray and fast about it um so it was kind of cool to see the way the Lord really answered and then in our dating years he um really answered other prayers like bringing unity on our views about baptism and helping us to grow in communication and we got married in 2018 and moved out here to South Dakota and marriage is way better than dating <laughs> and uh we have two babies that we lost dakota and shiloh and um we've been married for almost two years so that's our family um and then oh sir uh yeah serving the lord um i would say right we're still like seeking the lord for direction about the future and what he's calling us to do but we always want to serve the lord where he has us and so um I think one of the ways that we see the Lord um, calling us right now is just being part of this church plant, being involved in the church and serving. Um, I've been in particular kind of um, wanting to s use hospitality as um, an opportunity for both fellowship and evangelism. So that's something that's been um, something that we've been trying to be intentional about, though it's been different right now. But we w definitely hope to do more of that in the future and um, yeah. And I teach piano, which has also been another way to have opportunities. But yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, I really appreciate you and Justin and your friendship, your service in our church. Thanks for bringing the word. Thanks for helping with worship this morning as well. And um, 
Uh, if you go back into March, you'll see that th these testimonies are at the end of each of our messages, and we're just going to continue to do that as long as it seems like it's helpful and we've got stories to tell, which I don't think we'll run out of. So if you want to, you could go back and just skip to the end of all of our YouTube live streams and just get the stories. And if there's one that resonates with you, I know that uh, it, we would be happy to connect you with, with one of these people if something in their story kind of connects with you. I would love to just connect you two together, and they would be encouraged to know that them putting their story on the Internet, which is a vulnerable thing, encourage someone, and then uh, also maybe uh, they could be a further encouragement to you too. So uh, I hope even while we're scattered and, and have kind of this online relationship right now uh, that it still facilitates the opportunity to to encourage one another and to get to know one another. So, so let me know that. Uh, let me know if you would like to uh, meet or correspond with anybody that you've heard testimonies from. I know that they each would love that. So, our benediction today is from Numbers chapter six, twenty-four through twenty-six. Maybe the most famous benediction in the Bible, and it's this: The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. I pray that that's true for you this week. Let us know if there's some way we can connect with you, pray for you, encourage you, and God bless. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.